If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to James chapter 3. We've been studying the book of James, which is in fact a sermon in the form of a letter. It has an extended introduction, an extended conclusion. In between are the three main points of what James is trying to uh, remind his readers of. That is, to care for those who are in need, to control our tongues, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Um, We've studied the introduction, the first point, and we're finishing up the second point. But I think in the process, we may have missed a series of contrasts, which have their roots in what James wrote in chapter 1, verse 8. Let me read verses 6 and 7 first. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. I think I've mentioned the fact that James may have, in fact, coined this word in Greek, literally, to be two souls, or to be, have a divided soul. Um, but the concept is not original with him. James didn't think this up. In fact, if you go to Psalm 119, verses 113, I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. For James, to be double-minded means to believe and to not believe at the same time. Doubt is believing and and not believing, disbelieving at the same time. But as we've seen, we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to believe? What is belief and what is unbelief? Is it merely mental assent or mental descent? No, I do not believe that. Or are we, in fact, expected to act on what we say we believe? Well, we've seen in chapter 2 that belief is, in fact, tied to actions. And James doesn't think of belief merely as mental assent. In chapter 1, he's talking about dealing with trials, It isn't merely a uh, a mental exercise. Oh, I trust, I believe that God is doing something in my life. Um, What James is talking about is that we're acting in two different ways at the same time. Um, It's as though we have a foot in each camp. On the one hand, we believe, we trust God. On the other hand, we do not believe and we do not trust God. We trust something else, usually ourselves. Jesus spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. You can't have a foot in each camp. The issue is not intellectual doubt, but rather spiritual commitment. Will you do what belief calls you to do? Will you act on your belief? Belief, simply put, is this. Acting as though God exists. And unbelief is the opposite, acting as though God does not exist. And I think it was Francis Schaeffer who uh, I first remember coining the phrase practical atheist, that many of us as Christians say we believe, but in our practice, we're atheists. We act as though God does not exist. That's That's sort of the foundation, I would say, of the contrasts that come after this. Because in chapter 2, we have the contrast between claiming to have faith and then not acting in faith. James begins weirdly by talking about favoritism, which, what does that have to do with caring for those in need? But then he goes on in the second half of the chapter to speak of the fact that faith must be demonstrated. The evidence of one's faith must be demonstrated. 
when we deal with our fellow human beings, those who are in need. A counterfeit faith, someone who says, I believe, who says something but does nothing, that's a counterfeit faith. Go, I wish you well. You know, if somebody is without clothing, without food, you're just like, the Lord bless you, God bless you, I hope everything turns out okay. Um, genuine faith risks everything. And it's interesting that the two examples that James uses, Abraham, he had waited 25 years for Isaac, and now God tells him to kill Isaac and sacrifice him. You know, at this point, Abraham is probably 120 plus years old. He's going to lose the promised son. And with Rahab, why choose Rahab? Because she hid the spies, and if she had been found out, she probably would have been put to death. This is genuine faith. Faith that cares for others and risks everything. But there's something else. It has to do not only with our relationship with our fellow human beings, but with God. And so if we say we believe, but we do nothing, then we are, we are demonic. We are diabolical. Because the demons believe and they tremble. Their belief is very much tied to fear. On the other hand, Abraham believed God. He trusted God. And he obeyed God. And it's interesting that James tells us there, and he was called God's friend. It isn't a, a matter of fear. It was, in fact, one of faith, and he trusted God. Now we come to chapter 3. We started last week. And we find here three contrasts. We looked at the first two last week. Uh, here he's dealing with controlling our tongue. It's point two in his three-point sermon. Just a side note, I mentioned last week a list of sins that we may commit with our tongues. The hasty word, the untruthful statement, which is euphemism for lie. Uh, the sly suggestion, harmful gossip, as opposed to the other kind of gossip. Innuendo and impurity. But one thing, as I was thinking through the sermon, that I failed to mention is something Jesus talks about in Matthew 12. And that is the idle or the careless word. Profoundly convicting. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And this may be the one that sinks us. Because we would say, well, I don't do the other stuff. But careless, idle words, yeah. The first contrast is the tongue that is set on fire from hell versus the tongue that is set on fire from heaven. If you look at verse 5, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole curse of, course of his life on fire, and it is itself set on fire by hell. So he mentions here the character, that it is in fact a world of evil. It wants to be its own God. It in fact holds that it is God and rejects God and his values. Secondly, its influence, it corrupts the whole person. 
There isn't a part of us that is not tainted by what it does. It leaves its stain everywhere. Thirdly, its continuance. It sets the whole course of a person's life on fire. The tongue doesn't simply corrupt and then leave. It is an ongoing project. And in fact, continues and continues to set our lives on fire. The influence of the tongue never ceases. And then lastly, and this is the contrast, it itself is itself set on fire by hell. You say, okay, Damon, get that part, but he doesn't say anything about heaven. But I mentioned last week, we go back to the day of Pentecost. And I have no doubt that James' first readers were probably there on the day of Pentecost. They may have been some of the 3,000 who were converted on the day of Pentecost. This is what we read. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. In both instances, in what James writes and what we see in Acts chapter 2, there's a connection between fire and the tongue. One is the fire from heaven in which God enables us to speak, and the other is, in fact, fire from hell, which taints everything about us. The second contrast is between the tongue used for cursing and the tongue used for blessing. If you would look at verses 9 through 12. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. By the way, the King James and the ESV have bless in the place of praise. And with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise, come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. The idea of praising God, of blessing God, is very much an Old Testament idea. It's part of worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, from Psalm 103. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. But it isn't just an Old Testament idea. We find it certainly in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. And then in 1 Peter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We may safely conclude that this is an activity appropriate to a child of God. This should mark our worship, that we bless God, that we praise God for who he is and for what he has done. It is, in fact, one of the highest forms of speech that humans are capable of. On the other hand, Cursing people is the lowest form of speech of which we are capable of as human beings. But what does it mean to curse? We didn't talk about this, so we sort of went over it quickly. Um, I would point out that in the book of Deuteronomy, God 
you know, instructed his people, when you get into the promised land, you know, six tribes are going to be on one mountain, the Mount of Blessing, and six are going to be on the Mount of Cursing. The blessing is for those who obey his commandments. Cursing is if they do not obey his commandments. And so in this light, cursing someone is much more than merely abusive language. It is, in fact, to call on God to cut a person off from those blessings that God would give that person. It is to call on God to condemn a person. James wants to know, okay, one tongue, you have a tongue, you bless the creator. With the same tongue, you curse the creature made in the image of the creator. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And as he said, my brothers, this should not be. And he does mention it here. He wants us to know that human beings are made in the image of God. You know, he's, this isn't just sort of filler in the verse. He, he wants to make this clear that we recognize creator, creature. We are creatures made in the image of the creator. And we should not go to church and bless him and praise him, perhaps even in our private lives, but then curse people those who are made in the image of God. This is like a fig tree bearing olives, or a grapevine bearing figs, or a salt spring producing fresh water. It doesn't make sense. This is not the way things are supposed to be, and it's certainly not the way God made things. There's a question, though, I want to address before we move on, uh, before we get into the third contrast. And that is, people have asked, why is it that James seems to focus on externals? Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why James is not as popular among some Christians as others. It seems like he's only talking about our external actions. Well, I, I think a better question we should ask is, why do we object to the fact that James is focusing on externals? Well, I think part of the reason is because we remember the story in 1 Samuel. When Samuel was told by God, um, go to Bethlehem, and there you're going to anoint the next king of Israel. He said, you know, I've turned my back on Saul, he's turned his back on me, and there you're going to go and find the next king. And so Samuel goes and gets to Jesse's family. He has sons and one by one, he's like, this is, this is the guy. This is the one. You know, tall, handsome, looks strong. And God says to him, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So I think we have taken that perhaps wrongly, and we've said, well, what we do is not as important as who we are inside. Um, we tend to divide ourselves up into two beings, if you wish, the inner me and the outer me, the spiritual me and the physical me. Um, we don't see ourselves as whole people, and part of this is because of the fall. The fall has done tremendous damage. Things don't work as they should. Connections fail, and we lack integration at certain points in our lives, that who we are 
internally doesn't match who we are externally. But we are not to use that as an excuse for the, you know, this is why I live this way. We are not to say this is what I believe in my heart, um, but these are the actions that I'm going to do. But let's face it, we are all guilty of that. Oftentimes we do believe one thing but do something quite different. By God's grace, we are to seek to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that Jesus was not a segmented person. There wasn't a division between who he was internally and who he was externally. He was a fully integrated person, and we should be as well. One last thing before we leave the tongue. Uh, I think many Christians would prefer if James had written about the heart. Because the heart is interior, the inner me, the spiritual me, and no one can see my heart. Only God can. The tongue, on the other hand, is out there. It's who I am. People can hear what I say. And that's a lot scarier. I can't hide. Uh, so we would have preferred James to talk about the heart, but he doesn't. Three points in a sermon, and point number two is control your tongues. The third contrast is, in fact, sort of the hinge. It is, tr we're transitioning to chapter four when he gets to the issue of not being polluted by the world. It is a contrast between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom or wisdom that is of the devil. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So I said, he's moving from his second point of controlling the tongue and the wisdom that is required to the third point, that is keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. And it's done in light of the issue of wisdom, something that we talked about in chapter one. But what is the mark of heavenly wisdom, wisdom that comes from heaven? Well, James put it this way, who is wise and understanding among you? How is it that we know that we are wise or that someone can say about it, this is a wise person? Is it by their cleverness that they're able to refute people who disagree with the gospel? Is it by showing how smart he or she might be? No. James says, let him show it by his good life. It is by our actions, by our living by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. Some have argued that this ties in with verse number one. If you remember the beginning of chapter three, 
Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And so they're saying, well, this thing about wisdom, this is about the elders, okay? Um, They are to be examples. They are to show their wisdom. Um, And then they are to be teachers. Um, There's something to that, that the elders, in fact, are to be examples. Peter said, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. So to be an elder is, in fact, to be an example. Um, but that's not what James is talking about here. He's talking about all of us, all those who have put their faith in Christ, those who, by God's grace, are seeking to control their tongues. They are to be marked by wisdom. And by the way, if we doubt this, let's just go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, someone who listens to what I say what I've said in the sermon, and puts him into practice is like a wise person who builds his house on the rock. On the other hand, someone who listens to what I say and doesn't put it into practice is like a foolish person who builds on sand. Okay, so this isn't just for the elders, for the apostles, for the special ones. No, this is for all of us, okay, all of God's children. And how does one show wisdom? By his good life. It's interesting there are two words in Greek for good. Uh, one uh, is that w- something which is intrinsically good. And I think that's probably how we use it mostly in English when we say that something is good. But the other word speaks of something that is lovely. It is good and it is attractive. There's, some, there's a quality of loveliness about it. So by his good life doesn't simply mean, oh, he or she follows the rules. They do the right things at the right time. But there is this quality of loveliness about it. They do that which is right, but it's much more than that. Um, It is the word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, A verse that I remember from my childhood, uh, my family... uh, we were in a, a mission group, and there's a picture of the family on the front, and on the back there would be their verse. You know, and so pray for this family, and it's the Woods family, and on the back was Matthew 5.16. Uh, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The good works there, lovely works. Not simply, oh, you follow the rules. You do the right things. But there's a winsomeness about it, a loveliness about it. So first of all, by his good life. And secondly, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. We've talked about wisdom, and I don't want to spend too much time on it here, but we've looked at it. Uh, it's something that is we have all the wisdom books in the, New, in the Old Testament, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. But for James, wisdom is in fact the key to steering a straight course through our life's experiences. It is the wisdom to know and to act as we should. It is the key to correcting our hearts and correcting our lives and our actions. What is wisdom? It is the moral skill to understand and apply the commandments of God to situations and people. Simply put, it is the ability to
to connect the teaching, the principle, to the application. And again, what Jesus said, someone who hears and puts into practice versus someone who hears and does not put into practice. The beginning of wisdom is knowing God. We've seen this time and again, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's much more than a case of big brothers watching you, okay? But rather of having proper reference. If God spoke the world into being, if he is the omnipotent, omniscient, all-loving God, um, yeah, a little bit of respect might seem to be in order and to act in light of that respect and that reverence. Wisdom begins with the reality that God has revealed himself and we are to know him. And knowing in scripture means doing. We're not like the demons who, uh, yeah, we believe, we know that God exists. It is, in fact, to act in that light. In the Bible, the way of wisdom is the way of obedience. But you may have noticed that I, I left something out here. Uh, he speaks of wisdom, but also understanding. What is this understanding? Um, it's the only place in the New Testament that we find this word. It's used one time in the New Testament, and we find it here. It speaks of expert knowledge. It is someone who is well-informed. So how are we to know what is right? How are we to be well-informed? How do we know if we are wise and understanding? By a person's good life, their lovely life, if you wish, and by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And humility comes from knowing who one is before God. In chapter 1, James says, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. And in the words of Jesus, Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle in heart. Gentle and humble in heart, you will find rest for your souls. But you will notice in our passage that James is contrasting heavenly wisdom with that which is not heavenly wisdom. Verse 14, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. One gets a sense that James is about to make a very strong contrast here. On the one hand, we have the good life. We have deeds done in the humility that comes from understanding or from wisdom and understanding. But on the other hand, we have bitter envy and selfish ambition. Here's the contrast. But what is the difference between the two? Well, in light of what James has said, caring for others, caring only for myself. Now, we talked about the fact that we are to love our neighbors ourselves. And that requires, on some level, that we do love ourselves, that we have concern, that we have care, that we pay attention to our needs. But that isn't the only thing we are to care about. We are to care for others. And heavenly wisdom cares for others, and earthly wisdom doesn't. It's all about me. The negative that James presents to us is something that is selfish, that is self-centered, 
that is overly concerned for myself, for my rights, and my position, my dignity. But how do I know if I'm being selfish? That may seem like a foolish question. Um, but what if I'm just standing up for what I believe is right? If I've been mistreated, if I've been abused, if people are not treating me the, well, the way that they should, how do I know if I'm being selfish or just standing up for myself? Well, in the rest of this section, James will contrast the two kinds of wisdom. He will tell us where they come from, what they are like, their characteristics, and what results from them. So, in verse 15, if you look at it, here he's talking about earthly wisdom. Such wisdom, and in the NIV it's in quotes, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So earthly wisdom is not from heaven. Its origins, not from heaven. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and by unspiritual, it means without the Holy Spirit, without the Spirit. And spiritual is one of those things that people, I think, really don't understand. Um, it speaks of the Spirit of God. And if something is unspiritual, it is not from the Spirit of God. And if it's not from the Spirit of God, it's, it's diabolical. It is from the devil. On the other hand, heavenly wisdom comes from heaven. Earthly wisdom is marked by envy, by selfish ambition, Whereas heavenly wisdom, as we've read, is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Here comes the real contrast, the results of the two kinds of wisdom. Earthly wisdom produces disorder, which we will see in chapter 4. That's what chapter 4 is about. Every evil practice. Heavenly wisdom, on the other hand, a harvest of righteousness. So again, to ask the question, how can we know if wisdom is heavenly or earthly? How do we know if it's from my own foolish heart or it's something from God? Well, we look at the characteristics and we look at the results. Again, I think the results might be a better place to go because I think if we look at its characteristics, we might be confused. I'm just standing up for what is right. I'm standing up for my rights. What's wrong with that? Um, and by the way, if we're trying to determine if something is heavenly wisdom or earthly wisdom, aren't we in fact judging? And if we look at someone else and like, yeah, that's, that's not very heavenly wisdom there. That's kind of demonic, diabolical wisdom. Aren't we, in fact, judging? And how do we know if something is pure, that it is peace-loving, that it is considerate? How do we know if, in fact, they're not trying to manipulate us? We turn to the results. And this may make us uncomfortable, but what we find is disorder, which points to instability and disturbance, and every vile practice. Um, and here, I think James means meanness. 
just, just being mean in word and thought in deed. And again, we will see more on this, the Lord willing, next Sunday as we get to chapter 4. It is said that God's church throughout the ages has been marked by divisions. We need to face this honestly, and we will when we get to chapter 4, that in fact, oftentimes we think we are pursuing heavenly wisdom when in fact it is earthly wisdom. The result of heavenly wisdom, you will see, is a harvest of righteousness. This is, this is very Old Testament language. I mean, and remember, that's what James has. That's what they have. The New Testament hasn't been written yet, and I've argued that James is the first book in the, Old, in the New Testament written, but he knows the Old Testament, and he uses that language. In Isaiah 32, justice will dwell in the desert and righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. But even the books that were written after James wrote this sermon, this letter. In Hebrews 12, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What is righteousness? Well, in chapter 2, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. It speaks of being right with God. It doesn't speak of any goodness in ourselves, but of being right with God. In chapter 1, James wrote, a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. It speaks of the life that is approved by God. So there is that aspect of doing what is right, but it begins with being right with God. So you might say, okay, Damon, which is it? Make, you know, make up your mind. Is it being right with God or doing the right thing? I, I'm not sure that we need to make a choice. It's a case of both and. If we have wisdom from heaven, this leads to something that is marked. Our lives are marked by peace. We live our lives as peacemakers. We sow, we plant peace. We are, in fact, to be peacemakers. The last verse of this chapter should really jump out at us. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And it should recall to us one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. But again, what is peace? I think for most of us, I think for most people, peace is the absence of conflict. It's one of the contrasts. You have conflict or you have peace. You have war or peace. Um, yeah. Peace is a very biblical word. It's rich in meaning, particularly in the Old Testament, but it travels into the New Testament. Um, Think of the last night of Jesus' life before his death. He says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In the Old Testament, we are told that peace is the characteristic of the Messianic kingdom. When Messiah comes, there will be peace. 
The new world order, if you wish, of the Messiah is peace, shalom, the word in Hebrew. And the world cannot give us this peace. Jesus said to his disciples that, that night, I give you my peace. What I give you, the world cannot give you. The world is, in fact, powerless to give peace. There is enough hatred, selfishness, bitterness, malice, anxiety, and fear that every attempt at peace is quickly overwhelmed. Within the biblical framework, attempts to achieve personal peace or political stability without dealing with, in fact, the reason why there is instability, this is not pleasing to God. This is seeking something that belongs to God without God. James, uh, sorry, Jeremiah wrote of the prophets, the false prophets, peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. The disciples, and James, as he writes this, lived in the, lived in the time of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that there was peace, in quotes, around the Mediterranean basin, but it was achieved by the sword. There's the famous line from Tacitus, the Roman historian, held to be one of the great Roman historians. He was actually quoting one of Rome's enemies. They make a desert and call it peace. That's, that's not what Jesus is promising his disciples. The peace Jesus promises is his peace. The Old Testament prophets looked ahead. They looked forward to that time of peace in the Messianic age. But the Jews in the time of Jesus, and I would say in the time of James as well, thought that the Messiah would bring peace the way that the Romans had with the sword. And Jesus says, no, I will give you my peace. Um, peace is simply, the word shalom is the way things ought to be. Things aren't the way they ought to be. The world is fallen, it's broken. Everything is broken. And shalom is, in fact, the way things ought to be. It is interesting when you consider what Jesus said to the disciples at night. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And so a lot of people say, oh, to have peace means that you're not troubled, that you have peace of mind, that there's a calmness within you. I think that may be part of it, but I think we're missing something truly important. We might think that Jesus is saying, just grin and bear it, hold on for dear life. Just, you'll be okay. And I say this in part because if you look at the chapters before Jesus said this to his disciples, this is in John chapter 12. When Jesus realized that his time was near, now my heart is troubled, Jesus said. Well, wait a minute. You, you, in a few days, you're going to tell your disciples not to be troubled. And before he told his disciples that one of them was to betray him, Jesus was troubled in spirit. I don't want to be flippant. I want to be very careful here. Some might object that Jesus had little peace to give if, in fact, he was troubled. How can he then turn around and say to his disciples, yeah, don't, don't be troubled. It's like, well, you're troubled. How is it that we should not be troubled? 
if we define peace as the way things ought to be, then a person of peace is the way a person ought to be. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. This is the way you ought to be. The world can't give it to you. All it can give to you is brokenness. But this is the way you ought to be. And such a person who lives as they ought to live will in fact be a peacemaker. What James writes about in chapter 4 confirms this, I think. This is my opinion. We'll get to it next week. Because what James talks about in chapter 4 are the results of earthly peace, earthly wisdom, and it's no peace at all. It's chaos in the early church. And then he tells us what we should do about it. Okay, to wrap this up. In the late 1940s, George Orwell wrote his last novel, 1984, which has been described as a dystopian social science fiction novel and cautionary tale. I don't know if you've read 1984. If you haven't, you probably should. Um, Anyway, the main character, Winston, um, and uh, a co-worker, Julia, uh, decide to carry on an illicit uh, love affair, which is not illicit in that it is immoral. It's that Big Brother forbids such things, that sex is only for procreation. And at a certain point in the story, they talk about what's going to happen if we get caught, which they do get caught, inevitably. Julia is his lover and the only one that he believes hates Big Brother as much as he does. So this is a comrade in arms. This is someone they are of one mind. He says, if I confess, they'll shoot you. And if I refuse to confess, they'll shoot you just the same. The one thing that matters is that we shouldn't betray one another although even that can't make the slightest difference. If you mean confessing, she said, we shall do that right enough. Everybody always confesses. You can't help it. They torture you. I don't mean confessing. Confession is not betrayal. What you say or do doesn't matter. Only feelings matter. This is Winston speaking. If they could make me stop loving you, that would be real betrayal. She thought it over. They can't do that, she said finally. It's the one thing they can't do. They make you say anything, anything, but they can't make you believe it. They can't get inside of you. No, he said a little hopefully. No, that, that's quite true. They can't get inside of you. I remember reading that and immediately thinking about the book of James in two veins. First of all, the the idea that what one says or does really doesn't matter. Only your feelings matter. Or for some Christians, if we Christianize it, only believing truly matters. And I think James would say, no, you are wrong. By the way, I think it's one reason why so many Christians seem to dislike the book of James. 
This is most unfortunate because it is scripture and it has much to teach us. It is most practical. It tells us how we are to live. Now, it is a sermon, and one sermon can't cover everything, okay? But it deals with what James considers to be important, even lacking in the lives of his former members who have moved from Jerusalem. So first of all, the idea that what you think or what you do doesn't matter, or what you say or what you do doesn't matter, uh, James would say, no, it absolutely does. But then secondly, the idea that they can't get inside of you. I think, again, James would strongly disagree. And it's not a question of them getting inside of you. The corruption is already there. Okay? It's not a question of being betrayed. We betray ourselves. It's not someone else who does it to us. But we are the people of God. God has redeemed us. He has not abandoned us. He is at work in our lives. And the work is ongoing. It's not complete. And what we find is that there is, in fact, the resistance movement within us. And so as James writes to these people who used to be in Jerusalem, they've left because of persecution, he finds that their actions do not match what they say they believe. What has happened is the resistance movement inside their hearts has gained strength. They've reached the conclusion that what I do, what I say, really doesn't matter. It's what I believe in my heart. That's earthly wisdom. That's not heavenly wisdom. I remember some years ago, going back home to the Philippines, and uh, ran into an old friend, a childhood friend, who was uh, quite intoxicated. And he said, don't worry, Damon, I've got Jesus in my heart. I, I don't doubt that. But I, it's like, that's, that's how often we think. I can do whatever I want, I can say whatever I want, as long as I've got Jesus in my heart, I'm okay, I'm good to go. And James, as we will see next week, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's demonic, that's diabolical wisdom. That's not heavenly wisdom. That heavenly wisdom is, in fact, pure. And it's marked by kindness. It's full of mercy. It is submissive. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful that you've redeemed us, but then you haven't left us alone. You haven't left us in the dark. We have letters like that from James that challenge us, that convict us, that tell us how it is we are to live out our faith. That we are to live in the light of the fact that you exist. You are the creator. We are your creatures. We are made in your image. Yes, we are broken, but by your grace, through the work of your Son and your Spirit, you're putting us back together. You are healing us. You are conforming us to the image of your Son.
May we trust you and not in ourselves. May we look to you. And the quote that Lonnie read to us, may we not feel that we carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. You are God, we're not. And by your son you have removed our guilt and you've called us to live in that light. I thank you for bringing us together today. I pray for Dan and Lonnie and the family as they travel this Saturday that you would give them safety and a blessed and joyful time with family. For each of us in the coming days, as we walk through this world, we would have a sense of your presence to know that you are with us every step of the way. For Dave and Vivian, as they begin teaching, you would guide them and guard them. Thank you for your love and your grace. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.